We are back on another edition of The Fadeaway. He is... Dion Thomas. Yep, and I'm Eric Schmidt. Thanks for joining two guys who, between us, scored 2,129 points in college, <laughs> played 13 years of pro basketball. 14. 14, and won one Midwest Emmy Award. I'm going to throw one thing in there for myself. <laughs> Big thanks to Painless Networking, the Painless Podcast Network, and Chris Hartwig. If you're someone who's in the sports world or you aspire to work in it, Look for Painless Networking on sports media, or even better, check out www.painless.network and get connected. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by author Paul Shirley. His most recent book, Stories I Tell on Dates, was recently released and is a great introspective on how many of Paul's experiences have built upon themselves and helped him as his life progressed. Well, how does this fit on the fadeaway? Paul's first career was that of a professional basketball player. His first book was an insightful and humorous book called Can I Keep My Jersey?, which detailed Paul's pro hoops career spanning 17 total teams in nine years. Chicago fans may remember that Paul was the first Bulls player to wear number 45 after Michael Jordan. That's something to hang your hat on. And he also spent time with the Atlanta Hawks and Phoenix Suns. Paul, I'm going to confess, uh, I started reading your work when you blogged during that 2005 Suns season. That is one of my favorite NBA teams of all time. Uh, you've been a prolific writer since you left basketball. Your work's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Esquire, Slate, ESPN.com, and Playboy. And currently you're running a writer's group called Writer's Block in Los Angeles. So glad to have you with us today. We're going to jump right in. I want to know how many of those jerseys you actually got to keep, Paul. I think 16 out of 17. The only one that I didn't get to keep was the first one. And, I, and they, they made me think that it was going to be a problem. That, that first team that wouldn't let me take it. By the way, I want to say, uh, you don't have to confess to reading my stuff. You know, <laughs> not, a, not a crime. We're going to send you to jail. <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to lie, Paul, because I have not read it yet. But I'm looking forward to it, especially can I keep my jersey. Um, you know, of course, because you and I shared those long years over there. Of course, you are younger than I am. And Eric asked me once, well, did you and Paul actually cross roads? And I said, well, when he was coming into Spain, I was leaving Spain. So unfortunately, we, we <laughs> did not cross cross paths. But I always we were like we were like the, the the Moorish invasion. Like one of us was coming in, the other one washed <laughs> <laughs> <forced> out. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. that's a pretty good analogy. But how did you like Spain? I loved it. Can you tell our, our people a little bit about it? Because they, they, people couldn't understand it. And they often ask me, well, you chose to go to Europe instead of staying in the NBA. And I told them after my first year in Spain, I was hooked and I stayed there for another eight. Yeah, no, I, I loved it as well. I think it took me a couple of times or a couple of teams to really embrace it, to understand um, what was great about it. My first job there was with uh, Juventud. You, you know yes. that team's name very well yep. most people maybe don't but that's that was the home of ricky rubio and rudy fernandez and it was kind of a, a a european power at the time but i didn't i didn't know enough to appreciate that the first time i was there i think um i also don't know that i knew because i was 24 25 years old uh, i just don't think i was ready to really embrace spanish culture however when i got back to spain when i was so oh, 29 or 30 and ended up playing for a team on the island of Menorca and then Unicaja Malaga. I think I was more suited to understand the opportunity. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing to get to not only live in a foreign country, but also to be fully integrated mm -hmm. into a, full, a foreign country. Um, 
some of my stops, and I'm sure you had some of these too, were fairly mercenary where you come in and, and you don't get to stay very long. I was fortunate towards the end of my career to get to really live, work, and kind of embrace Spain, which I think helped my understanding of that place. I was there for two contiguous years at one point, didn't really even come home in the summers because I was dating a girl from there and lived with her. Uh, and I think that that changed kind of the way I looked at the world. Well, you know, you and I did cross paths. I also played uh, at Yonikaha in Malaga. Oh, and, nice. Yeah, and we, we went at different times. I went when I was young, and you went mm-hmm. when you were a little bit older. And I yeah. tell everyone now that I wish I had gone to Unikaha when I was older. Mm-hmm. Because of the nightlife and all of the things that will take you over <laughs> when you're there, <laughs> you know, because they have a huge university there as well, Eric, and you have students that are not just from Spain, I mean, from Sweden, from, you know, all parts of Scandinavia and Russia. And, you know, when you're 25 years old, that's not good. <laughs> and then See, we, yeah, we also, we probably had sort of the opposite experience in this regard. Um, I didn't, I didn't drink till I was 27. Didn't go out. I, I mean, I'm not actually Mormon, but I pretty much behaved like a Mormon. Uh, so I, I was a safe bet in Malaga when I was 24, but I was less safe as a bet when I was 30. Cause I was starting to figure out like, Oh, it's kind of fun to actually have a life. Uh, yeah. Was we, that on the questionnaire <laughs> when they decide they sent that to your agent? Does he drink? Does he go out? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, probably it's put funny. it there. <laughs> Funny you mentioned questionnaires. Dion, you can speak to this too. But one thing that that I noticed was if you got to a place, shook people's hands, looked them in the eye, made at least some modicum of an effort to try to learn the language and get along with the culture, you were basically in. Yes. Uh, They they cared about how you played, but most of the better teams kind of knew like – these guys are all good enough to be here. Like it, it, when you're at a certain level mm-hmm. and then it came down to, are you willing to take that next 5% step of just behave like a rational person, yeah. which I think, you know, you probably saw this too. That would hamstring guys when they would be so stubborn about like trying to fit in. I, I figured that out pretty early and I think I was able to get away occasionally with maybe being slightly less good in situations because mm-hmm. I had like just, tried to learn how to speak a little bit of Greek or something. Right. Well, yeah, I have to agree with you. And, and you know how it is. That's like anything in life is building uh, building connections and building relationships. And that was one of the things when I went over there, I was totally open to experiencing, the to, you know, having a total uh, Spanish experience. I, I've mm-hmm. always been one that has thirst for knowledge and wanted to learn and wanted to see different things. So when I went over there, I was like a wide-eyed baby trying trying to pick up everything that that I could. So that definitely ingratiated me to – I was in Marisa was my my first stop, Mm -hmm. um, which is a small, smaller city uh, where you kind of have to get along. And when I went over in in 94, they had two channels – in English. One was CNN and the other was Eurosport. So <laughs> that's changed since then. But so it kind of forced me to really get out there and be involved with people. But you're 100 percent right. When when they see that you're trying to learn the language, to be a part of the team and a part of the culture, you're right. You don't have to be the greatest player because they will adopt you and take you in anyway. And that was one of the best things that I experienced. And when I was sending people, you know, guys over to play in Europe and even when I was at the college level and guys were taking, you know, trigonometry or whatever they were taking in class, I'm like, go and talk to the professor. Go mm-hmm. create a relationship. 
Same thing when those guys were going to Europe. Go and make sure you hang out and you talk to the people and your teammates and the coaches and the GMs just to build that that relationship. So you're 100% right on that, Paul. By the way, when you uh, – so Manresa, when I was there, it was uh, Rico Manresa, which if you are at all familiar with Spanish, you might think was like a Spanish word, but it was actually a copier brand that came before the <laughs> Manresa. <laughs> yeah, I, I had TDK. The video, yeah. you remember, they made, used to make <laughs> the tape, whole VHS tapes. Yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah, I remember as a as a kid, or not as a kid, but as a younger player, I'd always heard of Unicaja yes. Malaga, which gets tra- changed into Unicaja. And you're like, oh, I wonder what you, oh, it's a bank. Oh, yeah, yeah no, that's just, they're giving them money. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. It was one of the better teams that I played for over there. Who was the coach at the time when you were there? I had um, Javier Ambrosa. Um, I had, oh, what's the guy's name? He has the sh- a short name. He was the national team coach for a long time. And I'm not going to be able to think oh, of it. And you um, don't want to listen to me just trying to rack my brain for the coach's <laughs> name. That won't be any fun. Uh, he's fairly well known, but uh, one of the Spanish coaches, not a Serbian coach. I Thank God for you out, that you did not yeah, have a Serbian coach. Quickly figured out, like, do not play for those guys because they will end your career. They will run you in the dirt, man. Yeah. No, well, I mean, the, yeah, the Serbian, the, the former Yugoslavian coaches were known, and, and they were oftentimes really good coaches. Yes. Except that they would shorten your <laughs> career because they would run you to death. They would make you practice twice a day, every day. Like two days were kind of a, a unknown quantity in mm-hmm. Europe, which is a thing people don't really understand. Like when you say, oh, I got to play basketball in Europe. And they're like, oh, that must have been so much fun. And, and you say, well, no, it was kind of like the military. Like you just <laughs> go from one thing to the next thing. And then you go home and try to sleep and eat and then come back to practice. And then you get on a bus and go to an airport and then fly somewhere. Yep. Uh, so there were times when it wasn't all that luxurious, but it was for me uh, a little more luxurious because I didn't play for any crazy Bosnians or anything. <laughs> oh man. And that's good for you. But I did have one coach that was Spanish, Manolo Hussein. And he w- I think he had taken his coaching style out of the Serbian, Yugoslavian, Bosnian playbook mm-hmm. because he was, he was just ruthless. And this is when I was in Las Palmas in the Gran Canaria. And his, you know, my teammates were like, Dion, you need to go. You got a good relationship with Manolo. You need to talk to him. And, and I really had to go and break it down to him. But like, Manolo, you're you killing guys, including me. You know, and at this time, I was like the third or fourth leading scorer in the country. But I'm like, bro, I'm dead. You right, know? right. Yeah, there's <laughs> like, nothing left. We, we you know, it's funny we're, we're talking about this uh, European basketball uh, uh, because when my first book came out, they, uh, we, I signed the book deal on the back of the fact that I had played in the NBA and written about it, which, as Eric confessed earlier, some people <laughs> read about. And I think they thought, like, wow, it's going to be great having this insider view of the NBA. But the truth is, as you both maybe are familiar, like, the NBA is very sterile. There's yeah. not a lot. There's really – the stories are kind of limited because the guys know – it's a big deal. You have to like really run yourself like a corporation. Whereas in Europe and in the minor leagues, that's where the great stories come out. That's mm-hmm. where there's there are obstacles and there's growth and there's learning about yourself, which is where stories come from. So I think in my first book, the publisher was like 
both pleasantly and unpleasantly surprised that the better stories came out of the European stuff or out of the minor league stuff unpleasantly because it's just harder to sell that to people because they want to think that like the NBA is filled with all this debauchery and craziness. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what the media puts out there when something happens, that's what get blown up. But you're right. It's, it's kind of boring actually. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what it's, it's totally true. I, I tell people this all the time that especially even in that Phoenix Suns locker room, it was like there were 12 little corporations. It was like an incubator for startups where every guy knew he was worth so much money that, that he was going to do nothing to screw it up. And I would wager that it's probably even worse now because of Twitter and because of the constant access. Yeah. Guys know, like, one thing goes wrong on me. I'm going to submarine the chances maybe at making $50 million in my career or $100 million or whatever the number is. So it's just not worth it for them to, to step out and, and be at all odd. But that's what Tinder is for, right? <laughs> you don't have to go out anymore. Well, and, and so, Paul, you, you had a lot of those basketball-related stories in the first book. The second book now, Stories I Tell on Dates, is not – there's some basketball in it, and you interweave some of the basketball stories too. How did you come up with the idea to do something like this? And, and maybe we can get to one of your favorite stories or talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that too. But where did you get the idea to do this? Well, um, Dion, I don't know if you had a – uh, a wife or relationship throughout all of this, but I did not. I, through all my twenties and a lot of my thirties was a single person Mm -hmm. who was in the world trying to get to know people really quickly. And in a lot of ways that happened, or in many cases that happened on dates where I sat down across from someone and I needed to get to know them, but also allow them to get to know me. And I think that made me particularly sensitive to the fact that we all have certain stories that we tell about ourselves, just sort of like pat little bits that kind of explain who we are, where we came from, that sort of thing. And a lot of mine do not necessarily have anything to do with basketball. They have to do with growing up in a small town in Kansas and being in 4-H or being a spelling bee participant or whatever it is. Um, and when I noticed this, I thought, you know, I should start writing down some of these in part because I have a lot of them and I think they're better than a lot of people's just because of the experiences I've had, but also because I'm so tired of telling them, it would be nice to write them down and kind of just like in a cathartic way, get rid of them. Uh, so I wrote down 50, uh, of my best, some of which had to do with, like you said, playing for the Phoenix Suns or in Malaga or, um, being in 4-H or the Boy Scouts or playing at Iowa State or whatever it was, um, and then whittled that down to the 14 best, uh, framed those by, with some dates that I was actually on. Uh, and then the book really kind of came together when I realized that until, as I mentioned, I was about 27, I had taken basketball so seriously that I hadn't really given myself time to pursue an actual relationship. So the book is also me looking for love. So there's this kind of tripartite uh, way that it works in that there's some about the dates, there's the stories I tell on the dates, and then there's also this arc of me actually looking for a relationship. I'm going to take this. This is something that's in there in the description about how the stories show your whole human being with politics and religion and love and death and childhoods. The MSU story, I think, in particular, where the girl came up to you in the library, and again, you're going to have to read the book if you want to hear the whole no story. No problem. Who wanted <laughs> you to sign a picture after the MSU game, after they eliminated, oh, yes. eliminated you in the tournament, and you were very upset. <laughs> and it wasn't – the story talks about it wasn't about just losing, right? And there's more <clears> to <throat> it, which, again, people can read about. But my question, is this kind of in response to being an athlete? So – 
that's kind of your identity. And Dion, you can probably speak to this too. When, when you were at U of I, I mean, your identity in, in the pros, I'm sure, is I'm an athlete. And a lot mm-hmm. of people don't want to or choose not to or just don't dig beneath the surface to find out that you guys are real people too. I mean, Paul, did some of this come out of that? Um, uh, I think that's a, that's a really astute question because I, I think when I've been on dates, and Dion, I'm sure you've been through this too, like – you're a big dude, right? Uh, you're you are you carry yourself in a certain way. I'm six nine. I used to weigh two hundred and thirty pounds, and I could bench press three hundred pounds, and I had a vertical leap of thirty inches. So people kind of saw me, and they probably would see you as invincible, more or less. Right. And they don't understand that there's all this stuff happening in your brain, and that because you're exposed to these really tumultuous situations, that in fact. In a lot of ways, you are really having to process a lot more than the average person who maybe just goes to work for uh, Ernst & Young has to deal with. And I think that it could very well be that this book was a response to you know people sort of always having this assumption about me uh, and that this is my own little way of being on a date with the reader and saying, like, look – here's who I am. Here's all of the stuff that I've seen. And yes, there's been some basketball, but there's also been some engineering and some like really sad moments at middle school dances. And I think I, and what I've heard from people in a, in a very, uh, in a, in a way that has been really, um, heartfelt is that it kind of, it allows, because it's so personal and vulnerable, it, it allows other people to bring their own sense of self to that experience of reading it. No, I, I have to agree with you. And and what I would always have discussions with people, you know, rather it was on dates before I got married. And I did. I spent most of that time with my, you know, getting married. To, uh, so I didn't I experienced all the fun in the beginning and then mm-hmm. shut it down about four years into the 14 year career. So I got all <laughs> that fun in a really short time. Um, but I, I would have to agree with you because everyone looks at you as what you do and not necessarily who you are. And the experiences like that's in the book and and the experiences in my life really make you who you are. So that was always one of the things I would tell people. Well, you know, I play basketball. I'm not a basketball player. You know, so we, we let's have further conversation. And, and, you know, my wife would always say, well, why don't you why you don't like to talk to people? Because all they want to talk about is basketball. (laughs) I was like, and that's not, you know, what I want to talk about right now. I mean. I didn't even watch basketball when I was actually playing basketball, you know, which is maybe odd to some people. But I sit there and I watch it and I'm like, okay, this isn't fun because this is what I did all day long. So let's let's flip on, you know, whether it's talk radio or talk television or some some political channel or something, because, you know, let's let's have a conversation about others. And, and that's one of the things I'm sure Paul is talking about that he's run into and I've run into and probably every athlete has run into starting from the time we started bouncing the basketball or throwing it. I mean, people just start looking at you as what you do and not necessarily with who you are. So I, I enjoyed the book. I, I mean, I'm going to enjoy the book. I love the top, that the preface of the book, because I actually had the same um, idea. I already have the title for the book, but I haven't sitting down, have, haven't started writing it. It's From My Grandmother's Lips is what I want to call the book is what the title will be because she was my biggest teacher. So all of these little things that I've experienced through my life are, you know, what she said to me then have come to fruition. And I'm like, oh, my God, this woman was a was a savant. She was, you know, a genius, (laughs) you know, and now I'm, I'm picking these things up. But, Paul, during your time and did you always 
see yourself as a writer when you were coming in? Or is this something that, you know, one day you woke up and said, hey, you know what, I'm going to keep notes on my basketball career? Uh, when I was at Iowa State, when I was a senior, I had a, uh, a an ex-teammate of one of my brothers go overseas to second division in Spain. And he would write these email updates about what was happening to him. And as you can imagine, especially second division in Spain, it was just pure zaniness. Mm-hmm. And so I resolved that if I got to play professional basketball, I would do something similar. So sure enough, uh, first year out of school, I got cut by the Lakers as soon as they could cut me and uh, then went to Greece to play. And as you know, and I'm sure have heard, Greece is a particularly tumultuous place to play basketball. Yeah. So I had all of this this bizarre, all these bizarre things happening to me. And each week I would sit down and write a little email update to people about like, Hey, this is what's going on. It was also, it's also very lonely playing overseas, as you know. And I noticed quickly that if I made these emails funny, then people would write back. Hmm. So, (laughs) and I would feel less lonely. So I built up this kind of shtick of each week I would write out an email that would try to frame what was happening to me uh, in a, in a fairly humorous way. And did that for the next three or four years. And, and then the Phoenix Suns website asked me if I wanted to write a newfangled blog in 2005, not knowing that I had kind of built up this shtick or methodology, um, which I kind of knew, like, this was, this was probably my chance to maybe have something come of this. I'd always thought, like, there's enough in here that I'm going to write a book someday. Uh, so I wasn't totally surprised when it worked. Um, I was surprised when Random House called and said, do you want to write a book now when I was 27 and in the middle of my career? But when Random House calls, you don't Don't go down the phone. So I said yes. (laughs) And uh, and then that led to Can I Keep My Jersey and and a TV pilot and writing for El Pais and all of these other sorts of things that have led us to now. I I like, so tell us What's your favorite story? Is that like saying what's your favorite, what my favorite kid is? <laughs> what's your I favorite kid? Have any kids yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's always, that's always tough. I will tell you a, a kind of like sample. I've been out on the road touring this book. And, and one of the ways that I frame the book is to tell a few of the stories instead of reading from the book because it's a little annoying to watch a grown man read, right? Um <laughs> So one story I tell is that uh, when I was in seventh grade, um, I in home ec, the teacher said, OK, we're taking a break from funnel cakes or whatever we're cooking today because today's sex ed day. And as a seventh grader, I was pretty much petrified of the, the girls around me. So I knew this wasn't going to be a great day, especially because the sex ed teacher was my mother. So in through the door walks my mom and I grew up in a really small town. So everybody knew it was my mother. It wasn't a surprise that, I mean, it was a surprise that my mother walked in, but everybody was like, well, that's Paul's mom. (laughs) So my mom was a very progressive sex ed teacher. Like she had, she would drive around to school boards to pitch, like getting to teach sex ed. Cause this is rural Kansas in the late eighties, early nineties. Like they were not thrilled with some woman talking about chlamydia and HIV and and birth control. So anyway, my mom does the like slides. Here's what happens when you have gonorrhea. And if you get pregnant, this is what you do. And then she's like, all right, so now I'm going to demonstrate, uh, putting on a condom, which as you can imagine me, seventh grade sitting there, not thrilled with this. (laughs) And when I would tell this story later in life, I thought like, Oh, my mom put a condom on a banana. And she said, no, Paul, I didn't do that. And I thought, 
oh, I must have made it worse in my brain, like, you know, kind of the way that we scar ourselves in that way. <laughs> and she said, no, no, I, I use my whole forearm. I just put it on my fingers and then unwrapped it on my forearm. <laughs> I was like, oh, I actually made it better in my brain than it was in real life. So anyway, as she, while she's got the condom on her forearm, this kid across the way is like, two better son's never going to get to use one of those. Oh. And I burst immediately into tears. But not only that, I tried to like, if you, if you look up, you can sometimes try to keep all the tears in your, your eye sockets by like, creating a little lake there. So I did that and it lasted for about 10 seconds and then they overflowed and that made it even worse because all the tears hit my shirt at the same time. Uh, and then, so I survived that and it was bad enough, but about a year later, my, it was, it was known in my small town. There's three boys, three Shirley boys, me and my brother, Dan, my brother, Matt, we're stair steps, we're skinny. We play basketball and we read. That's what you know about the Shirley's. And then suddenly my parents call a family meeting to announce that we're about to have a little brother who's clearly an accident. Like he's great. My little brother is the best, but it was not on purpose. And <laughs> so I had a feeling that there would be some repercussions for this as well. And sure enough, Soon after this, this same kid in the middle school locker room is like, hey, uh, Paul, so uh, your mom's not very good at practicing what she preaches, is she? <laughs> and I, being, as you can guess, the seventh grader who was not good with girls was also not good with sarcasm yet. So I was my best defense was, shut up, guys, as opposed to just like making fun of myself about it. So anyway, that was the sort of story that I noticed I was telling people early in relationships. And I don't know why I think it, or I do know why I think it kind of explains, this is who I once was. You see me as this confident professional athlete, but here's who I once was. This is the sort of person I was. It also touches on my family. It touches on where I'm from and it lands you in. This is the personality of this person really quickly. Uh, so great story. First of all, foremost, let me say that. Like it's amazing. That. And Paul, I know you, your time with us is short. Um, I have to ask, I mean, a lot of the stories and you've, you've shared a couple involve you crying <laughs> so much. The how, subtitle of the book could have just been like stories about me crying. How, how did you decide that you were comfortable and you wanted to show such vulnerability though? Because it, the stories are relatable. I mean, we'll be honest that I love that they're great for anyone to read. And this is what yeah. I shared with you on email. They're about adolescent awkwardness and about looking up to the high school basketball players when you're a kid and how you compete with other boys for girls' attention. Um, so you show a lot of vulnerability that I think a lot of people aren't comfortable talking about or reliving. Um, what led you to the decision that you wanted to do that? Well, I think it was twofold. It, uh, it is a function of having to very quickly get to know people mm -hmm. in all of these stops in the world. And I think the best way to get to know people is to be vulnerable, is to open up and say like, look, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I came by this naturally. I think it took me some maturation to figure out that like, if this person doesn't like who I am, when I tell them this story about me being really sad or embarrassed or whatever, then to hell with that person. Cause like, we're all sad and embarrassed mm -hmm. at various points, but I, you know, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I've known how to do that since I was 19. It took a lot of missteps to figure that out. I also think I was fortunate because I came of age as a writer in a time of blogging, quote unquote, when it was sort of encouraged to really make it personal and to be about your experience, right? To have this fairly navel gazy approach to like, this is what I think, or this is how I'm feeling about this. Um, so I think if, if I had, you know, started writing 20 years earlier, I don't know that that would have been 
as encouraged or as well received. I think it, it worked because I was bearing my soul. And so because I was saying I was being the most hard on myself, I could then open up about other people as well when I needed to. Well, I think, and, and maybe you'll agree with me on this, part of growing up the way we did, being involved in sports gave us also a sense of self. Um, mm-hmm. One gave us a bit more confidence to be able to open up and express yourself to that because I tutor a lot, not tutor, I mentor several kids in the inner city of Chicago and everyone mm-hmm. feels that they have to be the tough guy mm-hmm. because they're not the tough guy. But as we go along and we reach a certain level, you know, being able to go and play professional basketball, being able, and like you said, putting ourselves in situations where we're not uh, totally in control, like being in Europe, really gives you a sense of self and allows you to learn who you are. And then you're able to give that out, which is a sense of, like you said, of maturation. You've grown into this and grown, and you've learned it because I have to agree with you. I was a scrawny kid that was made fun of, <laughs> you know, and, and that's kind of tough when you're growing up in the inner city of Chicago, but mm-hmm. you, you learn tough skin. You, you, you learn how to deal with situations, which allows you in the end to be able to open up to people, which I believe brings people even closer to you and definitely you know made my made my experience in Europe a lot easier and I'm sure um, made Paul's a lot easier as well yeah I also there's there's one other thing and this will maybe tie us back to kind of the, the Bulls part when I was playing for the Chicago Bulls um, I had my kidney and spleen ruptured in a game against the Indiana Pacers and nearly died on an airplane and I think that oh, it, wow. it is a little trite to talk about near-death experiences changing us. But I know that that did change me and it made me really embrace life a little more. I'm not perfect at this and, you know, I'm not, it's not like I'm jetting around the world living every day like it's my last, but I think it, having something like that happen, um, also changed my approach and I wasn't as worried about what people thought of me in the sense of if they don't like these dark places or, or these vulnerable places, um, I'm not going to get along. I, I think I was able to then see like, at least I'm alive. And if I'm alive, I might as well open up and tell people what's really going on inside. Well, and you almost tie that back. Well, you do, I would say, uh, tie that back to that's the reason you got your first actual contract contract with the Suns. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I let go, go at that point. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I was actually in Kansas City with um, with Scott Wedman, who was my shooting guru that summer after I got really hurt. He was the person who not only changed the way I looked at basketball, but also kind of changed the way I looked at life in that it, I had I had played out of fear for so long. I was so afraid of failure and like didn't and was just worried about proving to people that I could do it, proving to Roy Williams that he was wrong and that I was good enough to play in the Big 12 or proving to all these other coaches that a little white kid from not little, but skinny white kid from a small town in Kansas could play with the big boys. Um, and I think that summer after I got really hurt and after working with Coach Wedman, I just started to play out of joy, which is the way that I had started playing basketball. And it paid off. I made that Suns roster and then ended up playing for the team that had the best record in the NBA. I didn't play very much. Most of that I watched. But I was on that what could be argued was the best team in the NBA that year. 
Well, you know, I'm, I'm a Bulls fan, so I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to agree with you on that. But well, the Bulls were awful <laughs> that year. They that were. Year. They there were. No competition. Steve Nash, very bad Bulls team. Those were. No, was... they they were actually. Again, you you I did. You had team. one of my. No, I shouldn't say friends, but better acquaintances on on the team with you with um, Sean. So. Um, oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. Sean Marion. Yeah. Chicago boy. You, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we kind of all run in the same circles. Paul, was great to catch up today, and thanks so much for sharing more about that career both on and off the court. You can get the book right now. It makes a great holiday gift. This is going to come out right around the holidays for, yes, almost, for almost anyone. I want to make that a point because it's not just basketball stories. Uh, I think anybody will get a, a kick out of reading this. Men, women, uh, single, married, whatever, <laughs> with kids, without. Uh, you can visit storiesitellondates.com or go to amazon.com. The author is Paul Shirley. You can also order the autograph copy on your website. Uh, and lastly, the Fadeaway social media. Please give us a like on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to us. We'd love for you to rate and review us on those sites. It helps us uh, with others to find our podcast. Of course, only if you have good things to say, right? No, yeah. I want it all. Okay, you want it. you can email the negative stuff. Don't there put you the go. other stuff. <laughs> uh, Paul, I hope if you uh, cross through Chicago sometime, you reach out, and uh, hopefully we can catch up. We'd love to do this again or love to just sit down and, and share more stories. Well, thanks, guys. And uh, I, appreci- I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the vulnerability stuff that, uh, that, makes, that sets you guys apart. Some podcasts. <laughs> well, thanks, and I'm not oh, going to confess you. to reading your stuff anymore. I will proudly right. tell people about it. Hey, thanks for listening. He is Dion Thomas. I'm Eric Schmidt. We will see you in the post next time on the Fadeaway Swish.